the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you haven't heard the show before, hey, welcome to the audience. And this show is usually in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. In today's world, it's very important to avoid probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, usually we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. With me, we have, a, again, as you know, most of the time we have one of the lawyers in our office, and we're very pleased to have Justin Daly. Uh, welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, Justin, you know, tell the audience a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Uh, I was born in Michigan, grew up in New England, uh, went to college in Arizona, and back in New England again at Quinnipiac University School of Law. And then shortly after law school, I came here to Brooklyn. And started my legal career, and I've been practicing attorney for over ten years now. Okay, and you know, just tell the audience one thing: the 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 one thing that attracted me to your resume when you sent it in, whenever year that was, was that you were an Eagle Scout. That is very true. That was the thing that got me in the door. And I, uh, I have several cousins who are Eagle Scouts, and I tell them that anecdote often, and uh, to encourage many kids to become Boy Scouts. I think it's a good experience, and attaining the rank of eagle it's one of those few things that follows you the rest of your life you know i remember once uh jim clark local real estate broker here he gave some of the statistics of what happened to eagle scouts and it's very very impressive yeah truly you know like maybe most of your astronauts a lot of politicians a lot of, i mean your service members uh like a lot almost every general you can think of is usually an eagle scout okay now you're pretty much head of our real estate department. At least uh, the other attorneys look to you for advice and guidance on real estate. Um, we have a question today involving somewhat real estate. What is it? Uh, here, I'll read it right now. It's from Cleo from Richmond Hill. Uh, this is uh, Cleo's question. My mom is talking about deeding the property to me subject to what's called a life estate because it's good for taxes. Why is it good for taxes? <laughs> well, it depends on how you look at it, but Deeding the property to a life estate, the one thing that it may be good for taxes, if you hold the property till after your mom is gone, then ordinarily under today's law, and this could change, and we're trying to monitor that, you know, hopefully there's not going to be a severe change in this, but it does scare us a little bit. 
But if you hold the property till after mom's gone, since mom has a, a lifetime interest in the property, capital gains are wiped out by mom's passing. So if you hold the property till after mom is gone, then in theory you can sell the house tax-free. Uh, right now there's no death tax, estate tax in New York under $6 million. So that's why somebody might say it's beneficial tax-wise. And also if mom has a senior citizen's exemption or there's a veteran's exemption on the property, you still keep those with a life estate. Now, personally, I'm not crazy about a life estate unless we have a single child who lives in the same house with mom or dad because things can go wrong. Uh, Justin, what are the things can go wrong with a life estate? No, without question, I'm in agreement on that. Um, I mean, especially with people living longer, I mean, sadly enough, we see children passing away before their parents, and then we have to go through probate. Um, that for that child who's passed away or worse than that is is we may be stuck and the mother may want to sell the property but then all of a sudden she's dealing with her son-in-law right like for in other words with a life estate now people think well in my will it says that if something happens to my daughter it goes to my grandchildren not my son-in-law but if you deed your property in a life estate your will does not control that property anymore and, and a lot of people don't realize this so you deed the property to your daughter your daughter dies before you most likely you're in partnership with your son-in-law mm. and that could be a second marriage and he may have children that are not your grandchildren. And then there's just also just life events. Things happen. Kids go through bankruptcies. They go, you know, a lot of times it's spurned by a divorce or something like that. A car accident could happen. Uh, they own a car. Their, their, their teenage, your teenage grandchild could get into an accident. You know, these things do happen. And um, with the, with the, the shield of having it in trust, we can do things on the back end. And, you know, the, we, you don't expose the property to issues with children. Yeah. With the trust, we can protect the, the house from going to a son-in-law or daughter-in-law. We can protect it, let's say, if your son or daughter is in a car accident, there's a judgment against them, and they can't put the judgment against the house if it's in a trust. Plus, you can change the beneficiaries. Uh, and, I mean, here's one thing that happens. It doesn't happen often. Mom deeds the house over to her daughter. Her daughter gets divorced from the guy she's with now. Then she gets remarried to a guy you can't stand. And you want to change your will. You want to leave it to your grandchildren. Well, that's fine. You can change your will, but that house is frozen. You can't change the deed to that house unless, in this case, your daughter signs the, the deed with you. And, you know, factors sometimes change. Your daughter could be in a car accident. She could be disabled. She could be in a nursing home. Something happens to you, that house could go to a nursing home. I mean, with a trust, you protect all of those things and you keep all the tax advantages. Now, I mean, people ask me every day now, what's going to happen? The, the stepped-up basis, let's try to explain it briefly. Right now, if you own an asset for tax purposes on the day you pass away, capital gains, potential capital gains on that asset are wiped out by your death. It's called a stepped-up basis, assets step up to the date of death value. There's a lot of talk in Washington right now about eliminating the stepped-up basis. And, and by a lot of talk, I, I really wouldn't necessarily categorize it as a lot of talk, but there's some people talking about it. And the problem with that, and Biden has suggested it, the president himself has suggested this. And so what that means is, let's say you have a house in Brooklyn, you paid 50 grand for that house, it's worth a million now, and there's probably very few houses in Brooklyn that are worth as little as a million dollars. You die, your kids may have to pay $300,000 in capital gains tax within nine months of your passing. And that would be outrageous. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's not going to happen. The Republicans are certainly going to block it for the time being. We have to see what's going to happen in budget reconciliation. And then we have to hold, hope that a, a couple of Democrats from red states 
We're going to say, no, this is going to kill us. And I think there might even be a Democrat or two from a blue state. Because let's say you have New York. Is Chuck Schumer going to want, you know, a million people yelling and screaming at him because they have to pay capital gains tax that they didn't have to pay, you know, two years ago? And, you know, it's, we'll say well, only the rich pay the taxes. But if you have, let's say, a million-dollar house, which is not much in New York City now, you, you sell it or you inherit it, well, let's say if you sell it, you may have a $950,000 capital gain. Guess what? That's $950,000 worth of income. You're rich. Even though your parents worked 30, 40 years to pay the mortgage off and the, and the house went up just because of, you know, inflation or whatever. So you got to keep your, your eyes out. And, and, you know, maybe when the time comes, push comes to shove, maybe letter writing is going to do some good this year because, you know, the, this stepped-up basis, knocking out the stepped-up basis is going to, affect every person who owns a house, a home, real estate, and it could be a co-op too, you know, in Brooklyn or Queens, because everybody has a capital gain built into their house if you live in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island, you know, or the Bronx. You paid $100,000 for the house a few years back. It's worth, uh, let's say, is a cheaper house worth seven or $800,000. Do you want to pay $200,000 in capital gains taxes when you're gone? Do you want your children to pay those taxes, you know, after you're gone? So, and I think it's just it's just so sad that they're that they're literally going to price people out of a, a area where they grew up their entire lives. I mean, some of these houses that we have where the families have been able just to maintain them, they're in very nice neighborhoods. You know, they've been there multi generational. The change in this law would would effectively force these people to probably have to sell these homes. Children who lived in the same house for more than twenty, thirty years may be forced to sell it to pay off the mm-hmm. the, the tax debt. That would be horrible. Meanwhile, our next guest, you know, as we mentioned before, the rest of the show we talk about public affairs, politics, history, religion, and we're going to have one of our favorite guests on next, Tim Wilson, retired lieutenant colonel from the British military, was all over the world, Finland, Northern Ireland, Canada, so forth, and he has some comments as a world observer. He works for the London Center for Policy. Uh one about China. There's some very disturbing things going around in China. And then two, Tim is, a, even though he has an English background, he is a great opponent or great believer in the Second Amendment of, of the United States. And Justin, you made a comment just before we went on the air. What, what's your comment about the, the Second Amendment and the well, right to bear arms? Well, I think it's essential. I think it's one of the most basic rights. It baffles me that people would actually be willing to give it up. Um, every person should have the right to defend themselves. Uh, I, I, I don't know how this is a controversy, um, but unfortunately, I guess this is where we found our society right now. And Tim Wilson knows a lot of the facts and statistics. And, you know, you'll you'll be surprised at, at some of the facts that he brings out. And again, I think he has extra credibility because he comes from a country that hit, did have strict gun control rules. And uh, Tim is always worth the price of admission. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by Justin Daly. Thank you for having me. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is uh, one of our semi-regular guests, Tim Wilson from the London Institute. Welcome to Connors Corner, Tim. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, um, and it's a great pleasure and honor to be here as always. Now, you know, let me, before we start with our discussion, uh, can you introduce yourself, your background, how many years, you know, your rank, how many years you were in the British military? Yeah, I I spent... uh, 32 years in the British military and retired as a lieutenant colonel um, before coming over here, marrying an American and becoming an American myself. I also spent my early childhood here uh, in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I learned the Pledge of Allegiance before I learned God save the Queen, and I love this country deeply and dearly. All right. And, and London Institute, what is the London Institute? Um, this is a, the London Centre for Policy Research, uh, which is at londoncentre.org, London uh, Center, a okay. website for anybody that wants to know more. Is uh, was founded by Herb London of New York. Um, he died a couple of years back, but Herb was a, a truly original thinker, um, a conservative, a, a very influential guy. He ran for governor at one stage. He did extremely well in the city. Um, and a really, really good clear-thinking, deep-thinking man. All right. Now, you know, before we got on the phone, we were just talking about some mutual contacts in China. 
What is going on in China right now? A lot of people, it's on their minds. Yeah, and so it should be. It's quite frightening what's going on. The similarities to the 1930s in Germany are, are many and apparent. And she has actually told us what he plans to do in the same way that Hitler told us what he planned to do. Basically, it's become a totalitarian um, regime with communist traits. And that is a very frightening combination um, by anybody's standards. It uh, now monitors everything that all of its 1.4 billion citizens do, and it is aggressively seeking to expand. You know, now, one, one of my employees once said to me that anybody that, you know, lives here, if they make a comment against the government, it's possible their parents would be visited by the regime. Yeah, that's absolutely... Well, it gets worse than that. If they make a comment against the regime, what we're, um, they can be jailed, they can be um, hassled in all sorts of ways, including physical abuse. Um, they can be sent off to correction camps. And there's even... Um, almost certainly genocide going on in Western China with a total uh, internment of the Uyghur population. The Uyghurs are Chinese Muslims, and the regime is terrified of them. So they are treating them incredibly badly. Um, the whole population of China, however, is under a thumb. And what they what they basically did was liberalize a few some couple of decades ago to start allowing some free enterprise. That resulted in a huge rise in the economic system. Um, but they are so desperate to control everything and everyone, and now they have these grand plans for expansion, which start in particular, should we talk about the uh, the islands in the South China Sea and, and surrounding... Right, and, and if you can give us a little bit of background, I mean, what's the big deal about their creating artificial islands? Well... One of several things, really. One is the way it has allowed them to expand their claims on ter territorial possessions across the oceans um, around China. And by going to reefs and expanding coral reefs and sand, re sand reefs and sandbars into artificial islands, they've built up military bases. Now, they promised... Um, first of all, we should point out that the United Nations actually rule against their ownership of many of those islands, um, which are also claimed by countries a lot closer, such as the Philippines, Japan, um, Malaya, Burma. A, a whole lot of these places are affected by this. And the Chinese are just saying, get lost. Um, breaking the international treaties, ignoring the rulings of the ICC, and in similar fashion, they they signed a treaty on Hong Kong with Great Britain, which was registered with the United Nations, to say that for 50 years, the Hong Kongese, Hong Kong pop natives would be allowed to elect their own representatives. Well, that's gone completely and utterly. Every single senior official in Hong Kong is now appointed from Beijing. Now, now let me ask you something. What can we do about it? What could it, What could the United Kingdom do about it? Um, the United Kingdom is actually, for a power that has waned considerably, still has a military, has the, uh, a, a, an aircraft carrier called the Queen Elizabeth, 
and is planning to send that to sail around places like the South China Seas for a long, prolonged period um, with its escorts of destroyers and uh, the like and submarines. So it's Britain is doing what it can. Um, likewise, America is doing much of what it can, although much less aggressively than it was in the pre- under the previous administration. Um, the problem is that China, under President, or as I call him, Emperor Xi, is actually um, using every form of warfare imaginable, every form of um, aggression, every form of planning in how to get their own own way. They are using economic warfare, they're using cyber warfare, and they've set up, as I say, these military bases on these islands in the South China Sea, which were never, they said they would never militarize. They lied. They have airfields on them. They have uh, solid emplacements of various sorts, and they have naval facilities, plus ground troops with air defense missiles and the like. So they are aggressively expanding their territory that way. Plus, they're using what's called the Belt and Road Initiative, which they basically um, spread their influence, shall we say, by doing things like giving loans to uh, foreign countries and then lending them so much money to build facilities which are then taken over by the Chinese. And that's how the Chinese are basically building a string of port facilities, for example, and airfields and even military bases that they have access to or total control over all around the world. Africa, the Middle East, um, South America is starting to look like they're they're getting interested there as well. Well, Let me ask you something. We talked about change in administrations. I mean, the new administration is six months into its job. What are the changes that you've perceived? In relation to China? Um, first of all, the major uh, clout that we had over them was was economic, and is still economic. And we put embargoes on various um, items, and they in turn were countering with kind of embargoes of their own. So we are vulnerable, as we found during the pandemic, to supply chain issues. That So much of what we use on a daily basis is manufactured in China now and almost solely they've got monopolies on a number of areas such as um, surgical masks um, and more importantly at the moment or it feels in many ways more importantly um, microchips which for example are causing huge problems for our auto industry because we can't get enough chips to get the cars that we're manufacturing onto the roads. Well, you know, you you mentioned the fact, you know, Hitler told us in the 1930s what he was going to do. What are the Chinese, Mm -hmm. what is Xi telling us right now, what he's going to do in the next few decades? He basically has a plan for China to become the major superpower of the world, to dominate the world. They see every other race, they are racists. They see every other race as inferior. They feel that they are the middle kingdom with direct connections, if you like, um, to all sorts of things. Historically, they're important, and they feel that they are underserved in the rest of the world at the moment. They found that uh, they are about to become very soon the economically dominant country of the world. 
And they work under this, as I say, quasi-communist tyranny. Um, and socialism has never worked in any country really well. And I have a problem when you hear people in this country talking about socialism, as I did in Britain um, when I lived there. Socialism, communism, Marxism, they're all different and they're all exactly the same. They all end up with totalitarianism, which basically crushes both independent thought and independent innovation. And the world becomes equal misery for all. What is the economic system right now in China? How does it work? Oh, gosh, that's... Uh, I, I know it's I'm not too a, much I'm for the staff to know. I'm not an economist, and it is a complicated thing, but the bottom line is that at the moment it's, it's effectively a peasant-driven, um, cheap labor moving slowly, or in some places quite quickly, to a high-tech society. Um, they, they, everybody should have heard the term Chinese copies, and that used to be their speciality, was to steal something and then make a Chinese copy, which used to be very low quality. One of the great developments, again, of the last few decades has been that they've switched um, to be able to meet Western standards of production on a huge range of goods that they then um, sell at an ever-increasing price and with ever-decreasing quality. Any innovation anywhere, basically, in any field, they are looking to steal and to develop for their own profit. Now, if you're if you're a U.S. business and they steal from you, what's your recourse? Realistically, the answer is none. Um, there are, of course, the co the courts and the State Department and the like, um, but actually, they write their contracts from the bully pulpit, if I can put it that way, which is typical of a communist tyranny. Everything is they say, for the good of the state, which actually means the very few people in power. And you need to realize the Chinese Communist Party is only 90 million strong in a country of 1.4 billion. Once again, it's this very small minority are controlling the resources of a huge and very powerful nation. It's huge in all sorts of ways. It has, however, a number of weaknesses that we don't work on. The um, if I may cite the example, they are not energy independent. So they're very dependent on low oil prices, which we in America very generously brought them by using an every avenue approach to um, the development of oil resources. They burn coal in enormous quantities um, to generate their electricity. They talk about solar, but they don't actually use that much themselves for a whole variety of reasons, not least of which is it's actually expensive to develop. They use coal, which is cheap and abundant. Um, they use hydroelectric, but they have enormous problems because hydroelectric historically has a shelf life, shall we say, which with very few exceptions, and there are some, such as the Hoover Dam, um, hydroelectric eventually clogs up the rivers and causes problems in all sorts of ways. Um, and basically, um, petroleum, they import 
85 plus percent of their petroleum. This is one of the reasons they actually want the South China Sea and ownership of the whole thing, because there are, we know, undeveloped and underdeveloped oil resources in that, those areas. One other question about it, Taiwan. What is the future of Taiwan right now in these times? Um, like, uh, frightening, quite, is my simple answer to that one. Um, they have to be really, really worried. Now, invading Taiwan is an incredibly difficult proposition. Nonetheless, if you're not worried about trashing the place, it can be done. And one of the great concerns that there is is that, of course, the Taiwanese themselves are ethnic Chinese, and therefore their will to fight may end up may end, may end up betraying them, if I can put it that way. Um, but they, the Chinese are making open threats on Taiwan, and it, my estimate is it's very likely that after the next Olympic Games, the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics, whatever you want to call it, um, next year, it's very likely that soon after that they may go kinetic in attacking Taiwan. And they've talked about that. I mean, one of the things that people say is that that would not, they won't do that because it would destroy too much value. Um, but look at Hong Kong, which was at one stage the seventh largest economy in the world just by itself and what they've done to that. And you start to realize that they don't care. It doesn't matter to them because they have other resources and other means of generating income. They want to dominate Taiwan because it poses a threat to them both militarily in terms of being a an island off their shore that could be used by others or even the Taiwanese to, to attack the mainland China. But it also, more importantly, like Hong Kong, presents a threat because it's a nation where free Chinese, democratic Chinese, are doing incredibly well. And Taiwan is the major world manufacturing hub for silicon chips, computer chips. So whilst there are many, many such factories in China, if China took over Taiwan, they would hold sway over, I think, something in the order of 75 to 80 percent of world microchip production. You're not making us feel very comfortable, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's not good news about things like that. However, um, I mean, it gets really interesting about what are the possibilities. Could uh, Taiwan is 100 miles offshore from mainland China. The Taiwan Strait is therefore incredibly important. And it is really, really difficult militarily to attack in, uh, at that sort of distance over water. It's a damn good moat. So much depends on, um, and this is where American military presence is important, much depends on the allies in the region. So just to put things into perspective, if India, 1.6 billion people, and Japan, and Malaysia, and Vietnam, and Korea and 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 Australia and all the others in that region 
decided to stand up to the Chinese, the Chinese would A, be surrounded, and B, would be hugely outnumbered and outgunned. And if the U.S. then joined in, perhaps to lead the way, um, the technological and size advantage that China's military has around the region would disappear into the distance. So there is good news if people will cooperate to fight them. The Chinese, however, have become very good at dividing. Uh, and if you look at the current fuss about intelligence and the Quad and New Zealand withdrawing from it, that is a win for China. We have our wins as well, though. So, I mean, one of them is what the one personally that I would like to see is for Taiwan to go the Swiss route. How did Switzerland avoid invasion for centuries? By arming every citizen, which is, as you know, one of the topics that I do like to talk about is the Second Amendment and how important it is. Well, why don't we take um, a short a break? Why don't we take a short break, and then we'll start talking about the Second Amendment. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to Tim Wilson about China, but now we're going to be talking about the Second Amendment. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to Tim Wilson. And we, we were talking about China, and then we talked about Switzerland, and where Taiwan might be able to defend itself if they become like Switzerland. And, and Tim, can you explain that? Yeah, the, the Swiss model is one where every citizen does at least basic military training and is then issued a weapon and in every house in Switzerland. There are military-grade weapons, um, very, very peaceful country, and that is a real deterrent to any would-be invader. In fact, it also applies in many ways to America, where uh, apocryphally it was attributed to Yamamoto that he said, we cannot invade America dur during the Second World War. He said, we can't, and his reasoning was that behind every blade of grass there would be an American, and he would have a rifle. So if you know that if you look at the way that um, historically um, terrorist guerrilla campaigns have managed to tie up far more powerfully equipped, far more technologically advanced societies, take the Afghan model again as another example, um, you can see how Taiwan could become ungovernable for ma the mainland Chinese. That's what I mean by the Swiss example, though, is basically the idea that any invading forces would constantly be sniped at by people wearing civilian clothes and, uh, you know, not being, not being cowed by the presence of Chinese military. What, what is the, the status of gun control or gun ownership in Taiwan? At the moment, it is limited. Um, they do have gun control in there, and it's not that easy for the average citizen to get. Certainly, handguns are uh, 
very, very tightly controlled, and rifles are pretty tightly controlled, which is interesting when you look at the topography of Taiwan. It's, uh, it's, it's a very mountainous island with a fair amount of jungle on it. Um, most of the urban sprawl is around the coastline. So there's plenty of room there for people to survive, um, live in caves in the jungle, and be almost uncatchable. Uh, getting back to the States, and of course you're talking about World War II, you know, obviously right now there's a lot of push because there's so much, quote, gun violence to put tougher gun control laws into place. You, you've yeah. been studying this for years. What can you add to that? Um, that gun control doesn't work um, as a basic principle of, you know, anybody who studies the facts and details of what goes on. Um, basically, you know, you have to understand that most of the gun violence victims in this country are limited in geography and um, and in, if you like, population. Um, so we have one percent of the population is basically the problem, part, the major part of the problem. Most of the killings that happen are um, gang related. So. Basically, 70, here, I'll give you some figures. I'm sorry for, I apologize to people that aren't into figures, but 71% of gunshot victims have, have prior arrest records. Victims have an average of 11 prior arrests. Victims? Now, think about that. This yeah. is not, you know, that's an average of 11 prior arrests. What we're actually saying is that the vast majority of gunshot victims have a criminal record and are probably being targeted by gangs from their own area. And of course, the misuse of guns is highly centralized in the major metropolitan areas within poor neighborhoods, typically, which are street gang infested. So, you know, all the less than or around 3% of gun crime occurs with rifles. So 95%-ish is basically handgun-driven. And yet Biden and the gun control people go on and on about assault weapons and what that means. They don't know what that means. They can't define them. The term assault weapon actually came from the Second World War. It was by Hitler himself. And it was the Sturmgewehr, which um, was issued late in the war to a number of Nazi troops, um, as a terror weapon. And the modern definition by military people is that an assault weapon is something that is capable of automatic fire. The AR-15 in civilian form is not capable of automatic fire. And all the features that the likes of Joe Biden and Andrew Cuomo in New York, for example, that they want to ban are things like hand grip, pistol grips, flash suppressors and the like, all of which do things to help the person firing it. And if you help the person firing it, you're making it more accurate. And since law-abiding citizens don't do many murders at all or accidental deaths, what you're basically saying is that um, the gun control people are making them less, less accurate and therefore more likely to injure innocent bystanders. Now, if I may on that, 
it's worth noting that defensive gun use is a huge topic that's never been properly studied. It's incredibly difficult to study um, because most defensive gun use is um, never reported. People show a gun, the criminals back off, and they admit, the criminals admit, that they do not like to go up against armed citizens. There are good reasons for that. Mass shootings is another topic that always comes up by the gun control people, but there are facts around which, which support the idea that when the police are involved in stopping a shooting rampage, the average death, number 14.3, when they're stopped by armed civilians joining in, it's 2.3. Why? Because the police are small in number, relatively. There's 330 million-ish people in this country. There's only just around a million law enforcement. But there are something getting close to 80 to 100 million legally armed civilians. So it's no surprise that when seconds count, an armed civilian is more likely to be there than the police who are minutes away. Do you have any statistic on, on what percentage of crime is committed by somebody who has a legally registered firearm? Yeah, it's incredibly low. The term legally registered is, of course, um, dif a difficult one because there are states and counties which do not require registration of weapons. So the term registered weapon, but I, I, the, the more correct term for what you're asking is illegal weapons possession versus legal weapons possession. Legal weapons possessors are incredibly law-abiding. We have statistics that say they are more law-abiding, quite frankly, that there are less felonies committed by registered gun owners, those who have concealed carry permits, for example, than there are by the police. Um, and I'll give you another statistic, that going back to how armed, legally armed citizens can prevent crime. 2019 results, uh, FBI data is now out. 334 criminal suspects killed by private citizens in justifiable homicides. The police killed 340. In other words, armed, legally armed civilians killed as many felons in commission of crime as the police did that's a very interesting point now uh, let's get back to our governor cuomo here i remember he once said well there there's no reason that anybody should have an ar-15 because you don't need to hunt with an ar-15 as if the second amendment was about hunting yeah cuomo is has got his own reasons and i'm not a mind reader but i'm always of a politician saying, oh, people don't need guns for any reason. Um, I, one has to suspect that if you read the, the history of this country and the Constitution and the Second Amendment in particular, it was very clear that the founding fathers wanted people to be armed, amongst other things, to prevent tyranny by the government. One, therefore, has to suspect that those that are against guns, who are in positions of power, are worried because they are they realize that they are on their way to becoming tyrants themselves. In other words, it's self protection that makes them want to control guns. Well, well let me ask you something. Do you think I, I mean I don't know, yes, I know the Second Amendment was there so that the, the population, the minute men so to speak, 
they could arm themselves and defend themselves against the government. But can we, as a practical matter, can anybody here arm themselves against the government the way the world is today? Well, first of all, if you were truly subversive and therefore didn't regard the government as giving you legal orders, of course you can, because there's a black market out there which criminals use. Surprise, surprise. Less than one third of it's less than 10 percent of all the guns that go through criminal use actually come from any form of legal source. And usually it's 11 years later, by which stage the gun has been stolen, gone through five other hands and all the rest of it. Legal guns are not the issue. But if you wanted to become a terrorist, it is not hard in this country or anywhere else, even in Britain, to get hold of an illegal gun. And, and you know, listen, when I was going to high school, I remember they, they would have these debates that in New York City we had so many homicides by firearm and in London they had no, uh, you know, deaths by homicide by fi- use of firearms. But did those rules work in Northern Ireland, which I know you were stationed there? Um, yeah, I did tours in Northern Ireland. And first of all, I'll say that anybody claiming that there are no firearms murders in London is wrong. Um, there are. There are a surprising number of firearms murders in and around London and the UK. Northern Ireland has a slightly higher rate. Um, that's not really a surprise, owing to the fairly recent trouble of the history of the Troubles, as it's called. Um, but guns are... How can I put this? Criminal use of guns is a worldwide problem. The places where it isn't tend to be the more heavily armed places like Israel, um, Switzerland, and the U.S., which is actually a much more peaceful country than people realize. The data and statistics are very solid um, that actually, if you, in particular, if you take out the suicides, which are a problem that the guns are only a tool used by suicide victims to efficiently commit the the deed that they wish to commit. Um, that then, if you take out, if you like, the gang crime of gangs shooting each other, in other words, criminal on criminal. Um, shootings, then you end up with a country that is incredibly peaceful, as it is even with those factors in there. We are at the median of the world for um, for gun violence. And actually, gun violence is, I, I believe it's about 3% of all violent crime is committed with a gun. So th- it is a myth that there is a gun gun epidemic problem in this country tim we're running out of time but where can people learn more uh, about the london institute uh londoncenter.org is our website we also have a a youtube channel called thought to action thought to action please look it up if you can yep thought to action and how do you guys get funding uh private donation and you know, we're grateful for every penny we can get to help us 
move forward with our research. We are mainly uh, a group of people who research thoroughly what we can and then try very hard to come up with practical solutions. Tim Wilson, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. My pleasure. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable... I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my son Michael right now. Hello, everyone. And, you know, I always find Tim Wilson to be an entertaining guest, and he has a lot of insights. Thanks again to Lieutenant Colonel Tim Wilson from the London Center for Policy Research. Now, thanks again to Justin Daly, too, for deigning to be on our show. But, Michael, <laughs> if somebody has an email question asked about estate planning and elder law, where, where do they send it? Yeah, if you have an email question, if you want to reach out to us and just kind of, you know, maybe hear your question on air, um, you're going to want to email askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Now, Connors is spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Okay, and again, we're going to be on the same station, same times next week. Tune us in. If you have any questions, you know, email us those questions. And if you want to schedule an appointment with us, Connors and Sullivan, please feel free to do so. And if you missed our seminars this week, then please go ahead, get, hit right to YouTube, and search Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar, and 
you will have a lot of the information that we provide right there. All right. Thanks goodbye. for joining us. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.